The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continue studying the book of Acts, written by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit as the growth and expansion of the church was being traced. We're on the midst of what we call Paul's second missionary journey. Silas was his primary companion this time, and somehow Paul has outdistanced the companions. We don't know exactly why he ends up in Athens by himself waiting for the others to join him. And yet, if you've ever flown on an airline, maybe you know why. Uh, Their plane got canceled or something, but uh, whatever reason, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, who had remained behind in Berea, and Paul went on ahead. So I'm going to pick up reading verse 16 of Acts 17 and read this rather well-known passage of Paul in Athens here in the Word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscribed, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. His spirit who spoke it speaks to us as we interpret and hear and apply it. I'm sure you may know there's been a resurgence of rather bold atheist writers in the marketplace in recent years. People who create headlines with their anti-Christian declarations. A very prominent representative of these is Dr. Richard Dawkins, who is a professor emeritus at Oxford University of Biological Science. Dawkins not only views all belief in God, any God, as complete folly, he also heralds the evolutionary theory and all of its implications as his explanation of what would be a better religion, asserting that the universe and everything in it, all living things, have emerged from somehow the random chance combinations of molecules mutating and colliding and combining over the many eons of time. Dawkins' most famous book was written in 2006. It's called The God Delusion. His title certainly announces where he's going, The God Delusion. He makes little attempt, interestingly to me, to defend his own worldview, his own philosophy, which, as I said, is based on evolution. Anyone who studies evolution as a creationist, as an advocate of intelligent design, can tell you there are gaping, huge holes and problems with evolution that have to be defended. The interesting thing is that Dawkins makes almost no uh, even seeing any necessity to defend these. He simply rather flippantly asserts that evolution is the obvious sure fact that explains everything. I love this one sentence I lift from his work. This is his words. He wrote, evolution has been observed to be true. It just has never been observed while it is happening. Think about that. And thank you, Mr. Dawkins, for that honesty. When you observe it happening, let me know. Dawkins refuses to debate with creationists or advocates of intelligent design. He tells his former atheists, don't even honor them. You know, don't even act as if they were worthy of being on a platform with you because of the folly that they believe. And so I find, as I read in his work, it's full of what my logic teacher taught me were ad hominem attacks. That's a Latin word which means to the man. In other words... You disagree with somebody, but you don't address your disagreement 
as an honest disputation with the subject matter, you attack the man. Now, young people, you need to learn that that's the worst way to dispute with somebody. Ad hominem arguments are always the weakest way to disagree with somebody, just by insulting them. But here's what Dawkins says, and I guess he put me in a category when he says, quote, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution as the cause of the universe, that person is ignorant, stupid, insane, or wicked. Well, thanks, Mr. Dawkins. I'm probably all four in your categorization. You don't win any points by simply attacking somebody with belittling sarcasm but being unwilling to address the subject at hand. Christians know God is not a delusion. But we are surrounded in our culture every day, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools, with people who do think Dawkins is right. God is a delusion. Well, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul interacted with scholars in the intellectual capital of his world. If we translated it today, he would have been in Harvard Square or in wherever the central forum of debate is at a university like Oxford or Cambridge or Yale. As he met scholars who would have been glad to talk to him about the unknown God. I always wondered what they were saying, the Athenians, by labeling a monument to the unknown God. I can only come up with the conclusion that they were saying, look, we've got idols to Mercury and and Venus and Zeus and Athena and all these people all over our city. But you know what? At heart, we're basically skeptics. And we're not really sure if there is any God. And so let's make sure we have a monument to the unknown God. And the same skepticism expressed by Dawkins in the 21st century was expressed in that century when you see these Athenians finding Paul in their midst and finding him speaking in the public square, and they say, what is this babbler saying? The commentaries all say the Greek term there is a very interesting term. The word translated babbler is, is like a word picture for a bird pecking at seeds in the gutter. <laughs> you can't insult a person much better than that. What does this bird pecking at seeds in the gutter have to say? They despise Paul, and yet somehow they listen to him. These Athenians who, whose city was full of statues to gods and goddesses and heroes of battle and heroes of literature and poetry and architecture, some plated with gold, some carved in lovely marble. They were saying, I'm not sure what convictions we have or passionate attachment we have to any of these people to whom we've built monuments. But about God, we would just say, Maybe he's unknown and unknowable. Contrast with that, the writings of a man in the 20th century, J.I. Packer, who wrote his book, Knowing God, which you should realize was probably one of the 10 classic, valuable Christian books written in the 20th century, in my opinion. In Knowing God, in the preface, Packer states what he's setting out to write about 
And here's just a snippet of it. He says, the contemplation of God is a subject so vast that our thoughts are lost in his immensity and our pride is drowned in his infinity. About most other subjects, Packer said, we may begin to master the subject after we had studied it long enough, but with the master science of knowing God, we find that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and no eagle's eye can scan its height. Here's the master subject, says Packer. A complete 180-degree contradiction to the Richard Dawkinses of the world. In today's text, Paul met these Greek philosophers at Mars Hill. He was in the central place. You can visit it today. The ruins are still there. The place where the philosophers, who were all aristocrats, they didn't need to go out and have a store or, or work fields. They, they had a living provided, probably owned estates and everything. And so they could sit around and talk about ideas. And they were brilliant people, make no mistake. And they exchanged these ideas. Well, they brought Paul in and said, well, let's hear from you. We haven't got anything better to do for a couple hours. Let's let you speak. These men who said, a God probably could not be known. Opposing the pride of them and of Dawkins and of many others, I would remind you of the scripture statement in Psalm 14.1. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. I would remind you of a more positive statement in Jeremiah 9.23 where we read, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his strength. Let not a rich man boast of his wealth. Let him who boasts say that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. There is wisdom in the knowledge of God. The deeper issue of this And the challenge to the atheist coming from Romans chapter 1 is not that it's impossible to know that God exists and not that God is in hiding, not that he has failed to leave evidence or revelation of himself. The problem is that people simply cannot tolerate the knowledge of the exalted God who does exist and who did speak and who has his fingerprints and his authorship all over this creation that he made. People can't tolerate the knowledge of him that God gave. And so whether humanity's idols are carved out of marble, plated with gold, cast from bronze, or whether they're a subject to be studied under an electron microscope, or they are a thesis written by a PhD in philosophy, whatever the idol is, idolatry testifies to hunger for God the need to believe passionately in something. And yet, the things that people erect that they believe in prove to be empty time and time again. And that happens at Athens and at Harvard and at Cambridge and at Oxford and at Paris and every great university of the world. Now, as a first point today, I would go with verses 16 to 21 of Acts 17. I believe what's here could be summarized this way. Mankind's best society will always prove to be an idol factory. Mankind's best society will always prove to be an idol factory. I have never been to Athens. I've certainly seen the pictures. I've 
taken courses on Greek culture, I think I understand what is there. There isn't any way we can exaggerate the greatness of Athens in the ancient world. No matter what city, you could go to New York and be awed by the skyscrapers, go to Paris, be awed by the beauty, and so on. No matter what city you would visit in the ancient time, nothing came close to Athens. You see, the Greeks were the most noble culture that ancient civilization produced. By the time of Paul, the Romans had taken them over. Now, the Romans were warriors, they were engineers, they were builders, they were rulers. But the Romans, by and large, were not intellectuals or scientists or poets. They had some poets, but not as many as the Greeks. And much of the intellectual greatness of what was Rome was simply lifted from the Greeks and adopted by the Romans who had taken over by Paul's day. Athens' glory was already fading when Paul came there. The city wasn't in ruins, but certainly its heyday was gone. And yet even today, you go to college, at least some colleges anyway, if they have any right view of Western civilization, and they're going to teach you about architecture or art or sculpture or political science or philosophy, you will have to go back and study Greece because its glory as an original cultural lamp is so bright that it influenced everything that came after. I found that in philosophy, when I had taken a couple classes in Plato and the other Greeks, you know, when you moved on forward into the centuries, it was like nobody ever had an original thought after that, at least not for a long time. All the great philosophers were in Greece. So here's Paul in the midst of this society, probably for the first time in Athens. We would think he had not been there before. And he's you know, spending a little time as a tourist just wandering around. One ancient writer said, as you moved about Athens, you would be almost as likely to bump into a statue as you would to bump into a living person. So full of statues was Athens. Statues of of heroes that some were still living or recently dead. Many were not even real people. They were mythological gods. But everywhere, All of these things, monuments to creature worship, people giving their plaudits not to the true and unseen God, but to all of these humans that they wanted to celebrate. And it says in our text that Athenians were consumed with the subject of what's new? What's the latest? What have you heard today? What's the new theory? You know, I read that and I couldn't help but think, wow. That's the 21st century. You know, they didn't have iPads and iPhones, but they had all kinds of ways of discussing the latest novelty. I just happened to hear, I'm not sure, I think it was actually from Walt Mueller that I heard this past week, a statistic about teenagers having some kind of a connection to an electronic device of some type for an average of almost seven hours a day. It doesn't seem possible. But it's not just the teenagers. How many adults have got their phones already? You could tune in and tell me what was on the the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Lancaster newspaper. You could tune in to wire services. You know, you can get TV broadcasts. You can find out what's new. And it's not just what's new in what we call news either, is it? It's what's new in music. 
What's new in politics? What's going on? I've got to get plugged in. And I find that we have a secular ideology today based on what's new in sports heroes. Oh, my sons and I are fans of a great team called the Buffalo Bills. You all know it's a great team, right? And we had to discuss this week, oh no, we cut our quarterback. What will we do now? As if it was a national tragedy. And I thought, this is absurd. I'm really not that concerned about this. But what's new in entertainment? You know, the, the, the show American Idol came along. It's been around a while now. And when it first came, I thought the name was an awfully bold American Idol? Are you kidding me? You think that the, the amateur winner of a singing contest is going to be the idol of America? You know what? I've come to believe in that title. Those are our idols. They're certainly idols of our young people. Entertainers, sports stars, leaders in politics, the conservative wing of the Republican Party just met and and had to have a, a straw vote. I don't know. It doesn't mean a thing right now. But what's the straw vote? On what candidate would we want to run for president next time around? So they decided that yesterday. You know, we watch the network news on TV, and right after it, a program comes on that I simply cannot stand. We, we, my wife and I both dive for the remote to turn off entertainment tonight. We can't stand it. And yet, what is it but a symptom of our society fawning over some 20-year-old singer's escapades with her second husband, who isn't really her husband, with whom she's had a couple children or something. And I don't care. But somebody cares. Somebody cares a lot because people watch those shows. What's new? When a culture is spiritually empty, you see, it feeds on idols that are nothing. And it's interesting here how the text names these two schools of Greek philosophy that were represented there before Paul, the Epicureans and the Stoics. We could take time with them that I don't have, but It's so interesting. The Epicureans were people who basically pursued pleasure. If you want their philosophy, it was eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. So seek pleasure. Live for pleasure. And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics said, oh, life is hard. They were cynical. They were fatalistic. And they said, you're going to suffer. So just be brave and tough it out. Imagine, those were two of the best philosophies that the great civilization that was Greece came up with. Live for pleasure, grit your teeth and bear it, you're going to suffer. That in place of a knowledge of the true God. Folks, ancient Greece in its decline proved as a stark lesson for America in our decline, and if you don't believe we are in our decline, I would like to measure the size of the hole that your head has been buried in for a long time. Ancient Greece serves as a lesson for America in our moral and cultural decline, that when a society will idolize almost anything that's new or novel, it worships nothing that is transformational or lasting or of any value. Mankind's best society is at best an idol factory. Well, secondly, we go to Paul's actual speech here, and I'll spend some time on that and have a quick third point. 
Verses 22 to 29, Paul spoke to these philosophers, even though they viewed him as their inferior. And here's my summary, at least, of what he said there. He said a lot. But I summarize it by saying, the one true God is no delusion. Men of Athens, I perceive that you must be very religious. You've got temples everywhere. You've got idols everywhere. And I see this unknown God monument. Let me tell you about the unknown God. I'd like to talk about him. Do you see what a brilliant contextual missionary Paul was? Brilliant. What's contextualization? Big word that we talk about in missions. It's translating the gospel into the culture, the language, and the whole value system of the people you're talking to. Paul didn't come in and pull out his Hebrew Bible and say, now I would like to preach to you from Exodus and tell you about Moses in the... No. They didn't know the Hebrew Bible or care about it. He came into their culture and said, look, here's what I saw. Could we talk about this? Anisaka is a man who brilliantly, I think, is able to talk to Muslims. Christians are infamously bad at talking to Muslims. Anisaka is infinitely good at it because he goes in and talks about Muslim doctrine and then is able to turn that to the gospel. So in comes Paul and he says, let's talk about this God. You know what? The unknown God I know to be the creator and sustainer of all things. In verse 24, he made the world and everything in it. And he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Now, what Paul is doing is denouncing what's called pantheism, the idea that God is in everything, every created thing. A rock, a mountain, a tree, a river, this pulpit. God is in it because God made it. God isn't outside of it. God is in the creation. That's what pantheism says. And Paul says, well, that doesn't make any sense. We know that God created us and put breath in us, his breath. And we could no more say that that he's just buried in his creation than we could say that a potter turned a, a pot out of clay on a spinning wheel and then made a cap for it and let himself be locked in the pot never to get out again. That doesn't make any sense. Paul said God is the life giver. He gave us life. He sustains the life that he gave. And then he goes on in verse 25 and says he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. As a matter of fact, he's the great giver, the one who gives everything to man. And so he says, look, it's not about religion. Religion means what we do for God. It's not about religion. It's about grace. It's about what God does for us. And God is not somebody we create and then we domesticate to behave on our command or on our signals. Every once in a while, I tell you about the semi-famous Hazel, the dog who lives at our house. All right, dear, you know it's coming. Hazel's been trained. I I blush to admit this because you will surely think less of me, but an example of it came up this morning. I was a little slow eating my breakfast. My wife was about to take Hazel out for her walk so she could get ready to come to Sunday school But there's something that has to happen when I finish breakfast before Hazel goes for the walk. My breakfast plate has to be put on the floor. Sorry, folks, that happens at our house. We have a very good dishwasher. Um, But I forgot. I was distracted reading something, and I didn't put my plate on. Well, you know, the whole body was waggling back and forth, and 
the dog was going crazy. She didn't bark, but Carol said, you forgot something. I thought, oh, yes, this animal has been domesticated to understand that she gets my plate. Well, that's funny, but people worship a God like that. A God that they created to respond to their commands, to do things to benefit them. People do it all the time. A household God who really is little better than a golden retriever or whatever. Paul says, no, no, that's not God. God is the one who gives everything, who creates everything, who sustains everything. And then he says in advancing the thought into verse 27, and this God is not far from us, and then he quotes from a Greek poet, more contextual ministry, in him we live and move and have our being. He's so close to us, He's so much a part of everything we experience, you can't even separate him, and yet he's beyond us and above us. Very simple illustration. If you would think of two fish swimming in the sea, of course, you have to give them the power of speech and rational thought to go with my illustration, but two fish are swimming along, and one fish says, look, I've been doing some research, I've gotten my master's degree, and I've decided there is no ocean. Oceans don't exist. They're a figment of our imagination. And the other fish says, what in the world are you talking about? What do you think this is we're swimming in? That's what I want to say to Richard Dawkins, who tells me there's no God. And I say, Dawkins, where did you get the mind, the energy, the strength, the the creativity to be able to conclude a stupid thing that even though it's a stupid thought, you needed God's mind to be able to think that thought? Paul turned idolatry upside down here. He said, it's God who determined the periods and boundaries of man's dwelling place, man's life. We owe everything to God. He gives everything to us. Again, another fish illustration, just a little different. Two goldfish in a bowl. One goldfish says to the other, you know what? There's no man. There is no man. And the other goldfish says, no, wait until 5.15 when he gets home from work. And look, that hand that's dropping stuff that we go to the top of the bowl to eat. What do you think that is? Oh, there's no man. Man doesn't exist. That's what Paul was saying. How could you possibly speak about the unknown God? He's the life giver. He's the sustainer. And you exist to his glory. And if he's unknown to you, it's because of your refusal to know what God has made plain. You know, it takes a lot of faith, honestly, a lot of faith in yourself to be an atheist. I don't have that kind of faith in myself. When I try to go in that direction, I say I can't sustain it. I would probably go insane. Maybe Dawkins would be right. I must be insane because I don't believe in his God of evolution. But it requires too much faith to be an atheist in my view. Third and finally, I would have you look at the quick conclusion here in Acts 17, 30 to 34. As Paul now, for the first time, really introduces what we would call the gospel, and yet he doesn't name the name of Jesus, here's what he says. He says, God's resurrected son is going to judge the world that God made. Again, notice he doesn't use the name of Jesus. I think he was more than ready on a future occasion to talk about Jesus Christ. But he was getting into the subject here when he says, 
Look, once God forgave you for your ignorance, but now he commands men everywhere to repent. And uh, he commands that because he's fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, not named, a man he has appointed. And he has given assurance to the world by raising this man from the dead. You see how he enters the gospel? If this was a playwright, he'd say, enter the gospel, stage right, or something like that. Now we're on gospel ground. Now we're on the ground where men have to repent. Repent of what? Why of their idolatry, of course. And if you're not an Athenian and you, you don't have their kind of idols, let me suggest some. Your idolatry might be your financial security. Most Americans, in some way or other, bow down before that idol, pursuing financial security, ranking it very high. Your career success, your popularity at school, some immoral pleasure you have that nobody else knows about right now but probably will find out about sooner or later, some physical addiction to drugs or alcohol or prescription medications or pornography. There's even an idolatry of worshiping human relationships that are perfectly legitimate. I've known parents who basically almost worship their children and live their lives in such a bent way in order to try to achieve some particular goal through and in their child. Well, you see, Paul said, Jesus, the son of the most high God who died in your place and rose by God's power, has been appointed to the delegated office of world eternal judge. The one who will discern the secrets of every heart one day. And he will say either, yes, my child, my son, my brother, my sister, of course I know you. Welcome to my eternal kingdom. Or else he will say the words he himself told us. I never knew you. I don't know why you thought I knew you. Was it because you were a nominal member of a church somewhere? I never knew you. I never had your heart's devotion. Other idols choked me out all your life. Why would you think I know you? And so we see Paul's hearers going away. The discussion ended. We're told how it ended. I don't know how long the discussion went on, but when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked, others said, we'll hear of this again. That either meant they really wanted to hear again or they had no intention of coming back again, but it was time to get rid of him. But skeptics, you see, cannot mock or postpone the truth of God in Christ forever in their lives. And, and isn't it great what God's Spirit appended here through Luke's writing? You know, it could have ended easily with verse 33. Paul went out from their midst. That would have been the end. But look at the next verse. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and the woman Damaris. What a blessing that is at the end of this chapter. A reminder that in the most skeptical environment, in the most sarcastic environment where truth maybe isn't even looked upon as an equal by other people, your truth of God, the truth of God, God has his people. 
And God's word made known claims souls wherever it goes. The challenge I leave with you today, and I would have it be a serious one. What is your God substitute? What is your idol is what I'm asking you. When some people say, well, we don't have idols. There's not a gold statue or a marble or anything in my house. What are you talking? We all have idols, folks. It's only a question of have you recognized yours? And you say, well, how do I do that? Pretty simple. What consumes the major affection and passion of your heart and the money from your pocketbook and your time and your resources in a manner which only Jesus Christ has a right to claim from you? What dominates your life? A Christian is a person who has faced his idol or idols and has said, oh God, I have given to this thing my success, my alcoholism, my sexual pursuits. I've given to this the worship that only you deserve. I want to reverse it. I lay down my idolatry before you, and I look to Christ Jesus, the one who you appointed to be my judge in eternity. And I believe before you, O God, that your Son, in all his glory and power and splendor, is certainly no delusion. Let's bow together. Father, my simple prayer today is that you might convict some people about idols. I think I know what mine are, but yet I'm ready to say to you, Lord, maybe I'm not looking as hard as I should, so show me if there's something I'm missing. But I don't stand before this body somehow most blessed as an idol recognizer. There are others here who've recognized for years the passions and and interests and dominating concerns of their life which are not from you. But those who have not, I pray, O God, that you would pursue them and convict them until they own those things before you in abject humility and ask you for a new dominating passion of their life to be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ and no other power, no other interest, no other article of beauty or value that he alone would claim that life. I pray that to your honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.